0: This evening, we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapters 5 and 6 tonight. Uh, chapters 5 and 6 have a lot of similarities to them, and um, we've, been, we've had some you know, service distractions over the last couple months, so it's been hard maybe to keep track of what we've been doing here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, but uh, we're thinking now, we're moving through this, this two-phase argument of Solomon. And the first phase, he's arguing for the, the benefit, the goodness of fearing God. And then the second piece, uh, when we, the last half of the book and the argument, he's saying, well, fearing God and then keeping His commandments are the natural progressions that actually bring up peace and joy to life and gives meaning. And so, we're co- coming to the end of that first argument. So, it's, he's moving towards um, abstract awareness of, like, difficulties and obstacles in life and who put them there. Where did these things come from? Why do we have this eternal principle in our hearts? And so, he's moving now and connecting all the experiences that we have in life that don't seem to make sense to God. And it's important for us to see his flow of thought. Um, But particularly in these two chapters, Solomon is talking about how important it is to connect joy to God, finding joy in God. Now, I want to ask a question. What is the difference between happiness and joy? And this is intended to be interactive. And Danny, could you just turn me down just a hair? All right, that's good. Thank you. Is that all right? Okay, I felt a little echo. All right, Nick. that Good. Very good. Um could you say that joy is more of a forward look? That there's, uh, it's attached to things that aren't necessarily current in your life? Because we can have happy events that are based on circumstance, right? But we can also go through circumstances that takes that happiness away, but it doesn't necessarily disturb the joy because the joy is founded in something that's out there. Okay? It's not contingent on the, ex- the experiences that we experience. And I think... Uh, the well-known verses in the book of James show this. In James chapter 1, um, he says, Brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith works patience. So he's implying that there is something out there in the future to which you can hook your, your, your joy to and actually becomes a fuel for joy. It's not the current experiences that you're going through that are the basis of joy. Um, And so I lead off with that thought because I see Solomon working through here in this argument saying it's now it's important for you to take the joys that you experience in this temporal life and hook them onto God and move them from your just temporal experience and connect them uh, with God. And uh, I think it's really important for us to realize that in the midst of the experiences we have, the only thing that can create that joy is God Himself. Psalm 46:1 says, "God is a refuge in strength, a very present help in trouble." Um, a while ago, I read a blog of a, a former, former nominal Christian who turned atheist. And as she was talking through her experiences, Um, In talking about being reared in a religious home, she said this. She said, um, she almost looked back with a little tear in her eye of remembrance, and she said, my parents had God, and today I have Google. And so, for her, trying to make sense of the world was was, um, within reach of herself. And so, it She was saying was that, well, there was something outside of that that connected and made sense of things. And so, it's important for us to connect our joys ultimately to God himself. Um, How many know the the backstory to It Is Well With My Soul? Yeah, several of us do. Um, Horatio Spafford was the, the author of that hymn, and he wrote it, um, after several tragic things happened in his life. The first event that took place was he had invested heavily in real estate in uh, the Chicago area. And it was, uh, there was a tragic fire that, that, the Great Chicago Fire, a Mother Leary, you heard that song, about the lantern and the, and the cow kicked it over. It would be a hot time. Okay, so that, that's where that came from. But he lived through that, having lost a lot of investments and there was a lot of stress on his family and so what he decided to do was to send his family across the seas to England and he was going to join his family later because of some business transactions that he was involved with. He sent his family ahead and another ship collided with a ship carrying his family and it sank within minutes. And uh, when his wife got to England, he, she cabled back and said, only uh, I am saved. And she had... There were four daughters that were lost on that, on that boat. But it was after that that he wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And um, you think about the stanzas in that, okay? He talks about uh, when sorrows like sea billows roll, obviously with the context of his family and the loss at sea. But the third stanza, stanza focuses on the redemption that is ours in Jesus Christ, and then the fourth stanza anticipates the glorious return of Jesus Christ and how that, that creates a peace and a joy. It was creating a peace and a joy and it is well with his, with his soul because he was anticipating the joys and hooking that to God. And that's how we, we manage with the inconsistencies and it feels unjust that he would lose his children See, like that. But his joy was not in his immediate circumstances. His joy was connected to God, who is timeless. And um, so this is how Solomon is thinking in this, these two chapters. And so he wants us to see that God is our only source of hope. Um, I, I, I cannot but review just a little bit, and I apologize for review. None of us like review. But I want us to remember the arguments that Paul, uh, Paul, Solomon has been developing here. Chapter 1 let's turn back to chapter 1 verses 14 to 15 he says I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold all is vanity a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. And he's Basically, he's saying that we experience limitations in life and who is it that puts these limitations on us? It's a sovereign God. He has engineered these experiences that we, ha- that we have and if we are up against something that's crooked, God's made it crooked and there's not really much we can do to straighten it out again. Um, we're limited as creatures. For example, I, as a young kid... I used to pray that I would not be short and bald like my father. Okay? Now, did God answer that prayer? Wait a second, am I bald? I might be short, (laughs) but I got some hair at 40, so I'm doing okay uh, on that part. But anyway, some of those things are, are engineered within the structure by which God's designed us. You know, I'm praying for that, but it can't be changed. I mean, I could go out and find a hair product that puts it back on, but like Donald Trump or, or, or whatnot. Sorry. And, uh, you know, God, you know, if I were to pray that I would be an NHL player, it's not something that's going to happen. Things are sometimes crooked. Some things are not straight. Some things are lacking. But God has designed that. He's sovereign over all of it. And that was kind of like the first pebble that he threw out to us. And then we come to chapter 2. And he starts talking to us about the how that there are good things that we experience in life. And so chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, we read, after he's summarized all of his personal experiences and all the good things he enjoyed and found nothing value in them, he says in verse 24, well, it's not that he didn't find any value. He said, there is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment for to the one who pleases him God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who God uh, pleases God and Solomon here is now saying that you know, man as a created being it does experience good things even though that we have limits we can't enjoy them forever in the time period that we've been given them That's a gift from God. And we can experience those things. They can be enjoyed. But it is, again, part of the limitations that God has put around us. But that in itself is from God. So we have the sovereign God who puts these limitations. He also gives us good things to enjoy. We can't enjoy them forever because there's limits there. But then in chapter 3, he throws out a third pebble of direction to help lead us through his argument. Come to chapter 3, verse 11. And he says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has put eternity into man's heart so that yet he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So we have this tension because we've, got, we've been created with a soul that is eternal. It's eternal. And after this vapor of existence that we experience, our soul is either going to go to heaven or it's going to go to hell. It's going to be somewhere forever. And Solomon recognizes this this tension, why is it that this, this humanity is trying to engineer eternal life for themselves? Every religious system develops concepts about an eternal soul. How is it that that's the case? And so, Solomon says that this sovereign God who's put limitations, the understanding of enjoyment in life, has also created us with an eternal soul. And so we come to chapter 4. In chapter 4, he talks about various relationships that exist in the world, and some of them are very oppressive, some of them are very um, bizarre and hard to understand, but the reality is that we've all been created for relationship. In chapter 4, verses 9 to 10, he, he epitomizes the, the beauty of relationship. Two are better than one because they will have good reward for their toil, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Now, this is not entirely uh, communicating about a marriage relationship. He's in the Jewish context. He was just—he's talking about relationship in general, having friendship, having relationship. It's important. That's a good thing. But why has this all been created? So we have this God who's made limitations. He's created good things we can enjoy. He's created this awareness of eternity. He's made us with relationship capacity. Now, this is all going somewhere because God has made us to have relationship with him. And we need to connect our joy ultimately to God and find fulfillment in our relationship with him. So let's get into chapter five and six argument. This is going to go a little bit faster now, okay? I know it's two chapters, but hang in there. But chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, he says it's really important that you remember that God is real. Real. So let's read verses 1 through 7. He says, God, excuse me, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are doing, uh, For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. So, in these first seven verses, he's arguing that that God is real, and you're to take him seriously. And what I mean by real is this, is kind of like how Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? God is absolute reality. Everything that we experience is not exactly real in comparison to God. It's important for us to recognize that today we have lost touch with the understanding that God is absolutely real. I know in my grandfather's day, there was often a real healthy sense of Christianity and awareness that in society that there was importance to going to do public worship. But today, we live in a world in which there are absolute… there's no absolute truths, and this world is just a, a series of events, and there's really no need for God. In fact, we just have Google. You don't need God. You've got Google to answer all the things that you, you wonder about. And Solomon, even in his day, recognized that people who lived around Jerusalem weren't taking God seriously, the one who had created everything. There is nothing new under the sun. Each generation deals with the same problem. And we, we act as if God is not real. He's kind of somewhere or something. And so when he says in verse 1, Take, you know, keep your foot when you go into the house of God or guard your steps when you go into the house of God, he, he's saying, you know, watch out. You're going into his place. You know, be ready to hear rather than give the sacrifice of fools and really, this is like the, the, the uh, Israelite, belie- Israelite believer who goes in to do sacrifice in the temple, if he's just doing it out of duty, if he's just doing it as being a part of the crowd, Solomon's saying, take care, realize what you're doing, because you're going into a place where God is real. Nominal Christianity... People who are a part of nominal Christianity come into corporate worship and they just sing because it's expected of them. In our day, it would be like that. When we come into the congregation and when we worship, and the worship teaching that Drew did last fall was very helpful. We ought to be considering what we're singing and saying in the congregation because why are we doing this? Is God real or is he not? It's important for us to see that distinction. The house of God, it says there, for the Jewish person, that was the temple. Now, in Jesus' day, he gave clarity to what that means because the Jewish people had kind of limited the house of God to just like the actual four walls of the temple and in Matthew five thirty four to 35 Jesus said to them, he says, I say to you, swear not at all by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And we have to take seriously that God is real. If we take God as real, then we can then attach joys to him. This is critical for this movement in our hearts and lives. And so in verse 2, he talks about how important it is to not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. And it's so important that we do more listening to God's Word Then we do speaking. Now, of course, I have to speak because that's my role as a pastor. But I also need to be listening. I also need to be hearing what the Word of God is saying and not just be flippant about God's Word because He is real. He is the living God. And so he gives several examples here of just kind of the foolish perspective of people who just talk without really thinking. In the context of God being real and aware, um, he talks about in verse three through six the ideas of, you know, multitudes of words and emptiness, and how important it is that when you vow a vow to God that you you take you don't you don't just let it hang there. You actually follow through with it because if you make a vow to God, you're 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 dressing the true and living God. And so, um, he's, he's mentioning here that it's so important that to your words be few because it may put you into a place in which you are accountable and responsible to the living God. Now, in verses 8 through 20, or actually 8 through 17, 8 through 17, he tries to show us that we need to make sure that we realize that, that material goods are not real. Because we have a God who is real, we have to be careful we don't look at the material things that we live with as being more real than God. Um, he does this again in a slightly different way in chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, basically the whole chapter. So, I'm, I'm bringing these two chapters together. What do you mean that material goods are not real? Well, in a very real way, they're not. Because they're not going to last for eternity. They're going to burn up. And the New Testament considers this. In 2 Peter 3, 10 to 13, Peter, simple fisherman, recognized that one day judgment would come and everything would be burned up. He said, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night… "...in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation in godliness, looking for and hastening until the coming of the day?" Now, I don't think that Solomon is saying that, that material goods are evil. He's just saying that they're not eternal like our great God is. And so, what's really important in this argument is that if we're going to sink our hopes on material things that are not going to last, what we're doing is trying to find joy in something that's not eternal. A hope that's placed in God alone is what brings true joy. Let's read some of this so you can see what he's talking about. In verses 8 to 17, he he shows us that love of material goods brings a hopelessness. Let's read verses 8 through 17. He says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watch." is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivation of the fields. He's talking here about the background problems that we experience. We think that if we organize our society well, that that will therefore bring us great joy. He's saying here that there's bureaucracy tendencies and bureaucracy um, tyrannies that develop. But then someone's over them who's, who's working to make things sure that people are being oppressive. And then you have another bureaucrat above him who does the same thing. He says it's really good for a land if you have someone at the top, like a king, who's actually administrating the country with proper focus and direction. Now, we see that in our own country. But the reality is, he's bringing this all up to say, look, there is very little that we can do if we're down here to make our country great. It's economic policy, economic realities are all contingent upon those who are in charge of the country. So we have blessings in this country because years and years ago, there was a governmental structure set up But it's not a perfect situation. There is still oppression in the world that we live with. And so, if we take, if we put our hope in those things, it's going to destroy us. And so, let's keep reading verses 10 to 17. And he shows us that even material wealth itself contributes to this hopelessness. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income this also is vanity. And when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has the, their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer when he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And so we can kind of put money in a mattress. And we kind of store this up, but it's not really going to give us what we want. Now, there's there's always people who will have more wealth than us and there's difficulty there because in verse 10 he says you know the person who loves money is not going to be satisfied with money i have a boy i've had a boy a while ago seth when he was a couple years younger said to me dad how much is uh how many pennies are in a dollar and i said there's a hundred he said i'm rich But now that he's older and he realized the value of a dollar, he's like, I'm poor. (laughs) Dad, I need more work. You know, and it's like, wealth doesn't bring satisfaction. The more wealth we have, the more we desire. And in verse 11, he he basically says, well, wealth actually brings more eaters to the table and leeches. Okay? So you have wealth. Okay? Then you have all these people banging at your door saying, can you give to this? Can you take, you know, can you give to this? And can you... And there's all this pressure. And so it's not really all that great. I read the biography of John D. Rockefeller uh, last summer. And uh, the guy could not spend his money on charity fast enough because it was accumulating. that he had, It became a burden to him. And he had to set up somebody over top of his wealth to actually... Weed through the thousands of letters of request. <laughs> it became a nightmare. Well, Some of us might think, I'd like that nightmare. Bring it on. Well, that's not all it's cracked up to be. But wealth can disappear. Verses 13 to 14, he's, he's, he says, There is a, a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son but he has nothing in his hand you can you can make a great investment and then you know what we go to war with china and then all those assets are gone (laughs) you know we can we can build up resources in places and the lord turns the direction of this world and all of a sudden our investments are gone and then we have nothing to give to our son now there's so many stories of that through history of how that has happened Verses 15 to 17, he talks about how how wealth in the end can't conquer death. In verse 15, he says, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much, much vexation and sickness, and anger. Um, and so, he's, he's saying here, in the end, you can't take it with you. Well, if you put your hope in material things which aren't real, it's going to bring hopelessness. You're not going to have the joy. Then we come to chapter 6, and he says here that, that really, there's a restlessness that develops. Not only is it hopeless, you actually get really restless. There's no stability here in in rest. Verses 1 through 12, um, he uses a metaphor of lack of rest and finding conclusion. Let's read, and I'll make a couple of comments as we go. It said, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy it, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, and it is a grievous evil. So, he, he, God gives him not even necessarily the ability to eat the fruits of all that he has accomplished. But a stranger then eats of it. Someone that he hasn't even known before takes over after his life is completed. And then it, it itself speaks of a restlessness, a desire I, I, I think of my father who has great visions for things that he would like to accomplish and do. He's 64 and 65. I don't think he could live long enough to finish all that he wants to do. And I, I in my heart, at times hurt for him, because he has so much that he would like to accomplish. And then it's going to be left to someone who doesn't necessarily have the same vision to accomplish it. And that's difficult for me as an onlooker to witness. I hope dad doesn't listen to this message. But keep reading here in verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun nor known anything, yet it finds, here's the key word, rest, rather than he. The older I get, the more I look for rest. <laughs> that's bad, because then you wear down. But that's a natural progression and finding completion. And so he says this stillborn child has more rest than the other because he's completely restless and unsatisfied. Let's keep reading here. It says, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have over who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of eyes than the wandering of the appetite this also is vanity and a striving after the wind whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he the more words the more vanity what is the advantage of man for who knows what is good for man for he his for he lives few days of this vain life which he passes like a shadow And so, again, here in this verse 12, he's just talking about how who's going to know good in this life? All of his life is vain. He's looking for something. It's like a shadow, and he doesn't find rest. So, in all of this argumentation, he's saying, look, a hope that's placed in material goods is not going to give you that joy. It's not real. In other words, it's not eternal. It doesn't have that enduring quality to it. It It's going to produce a temporary happiness, which is in itself a gift from God, but it's important to look through the gift at the one who gives it and find real joy in connection with a relationship with Him. We've been created with a soul that's eternal. We have a need for relationship, and we're not going to be satisfied for looking for that satisfaction in inanimate things. We need to find it in God alone. And so, Solomon is throwing out these little pebbles. Okay? Here's the fifth one. Here it is in verse 7 and 10, the little hints here of chapter 5, 7 and 10, that man experiences joy in God alone. 5 verse 7, He says, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one whom you must fear. In chapter 5, verse 20, he says, for he, that is, uh, verses 19 to 20, we read, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. God is the one who gives the joy. God is the one to whom we fix our joys. And so, how do we apply this? We can have joy in our troubled lives. We can Christians don't believe that life is free of trouble. We rather affirm joy even in the context of the worst of evils. There can be joy. And I want to just quote your testimony from a a girl that was in the uh, death camps. Eddie Hillisum. She found a capacity for joy and celebration even in the death camps. And she wrote on the 18th of August, 1943 in Westerbork camp. She was later sentenced to death in Auschwitz. And this is what she said. She addressed in God in her diary. She said, You have made me so rich, O God. Please let me share out your beauty with open hands. My life has become an uninterrupted dialogue with you, O God. One great dialogue. Sometimes when I stand in some corner of the camp, my feet planted on your earth, my eyes raised toward your heaven, tears sometimes run down my face, tears of deep emotion and gratitude. At night, too, when I lie down in my bed and rest in you, O God, tears of gratitude run down my face, and that is my prayer. I have been terribly tired for several days, but that, too, will pass. Things come and go in a deeper rhythm and people must be taught to listen. It is the most important thing we have to learn in life. I always end up with just one single word, God. The beat of my heart has grown deeper, more active, and yet more peaceful. And it is as if I were all the time storing up inner riches. Have you ever taken comfort in the fact that someone has had it worse off than you? And while there's true that statement even in that you can't really find satisfaction you can only find satisfaction that you have a relationship with God. Because all things work together for good to them that love God to those who are called according to His purpose. And that forward look of faith is an awareness that's where our joy is found. It's in God. It's in him. And the second application here as we close is, I think it's okay, from what Solomon writes, that we can have a limited joy in our possessions. It's a gift from God. It is a gift from God. But we cannot become so preoccupied with the gifts that we forget the one who gave it. And whenever we go through the loss of material goods... We might feel a twinge of regret at times. Um, when I, two weeks, two weeks ago on Friday, I drove up to Maine to drop off two of my boys to go to um, New Brunswick to be with my parents. And uh, they had had a severe windstorm like we had. And the neighboring property had a large barn that housed boats, boats, Expensive vehicles for people in Boston. The windstorm came, and the three stories went like, (laughs) crushed them all. (laughs) I think I'd probably have a twinge of pain in that experience if I had a vehicle in that, in that structure. But we have to be so careful that we hang loosely to the things in this world. We need to check to see if at times when we lose things that we are not holding on to something that's inferior to God. Not making idol of something else and embrace God who gives all joy.